When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. What China is doing to us is horrible. Don't forget, we're like the piggy bank that's being robbed. China. I love them. China. You know who's getting the oil? China. Because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the sexual predator defending Bill O'Reilly. Or is it the other way around? We're here to talk about Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And before we get started, I have a few announcements. The first is that we're starting a regular Slate Plus segment for Slate Plus members, which you should be one of if you're not already. And if you are a member, stick around for a return visit from Gabriel Sherman of New York Magazine, the world expert in Fox News. We're going to be talking about the implosion of Bill O'Reilly. And we're going to be doing follow-up Slate Plus segments every week to track stories Trumpcast has been following. Then, announcement number two, I want to remind you we've got an event coming up at the Tribeca Film Festival on the evening of April 30th with Jamel Bowie and Virginia Heffernan and me. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And finally, announcement number three, let me remind you about the Trumpcast Book Club. This is the monthly club where we read books that we think might offer insight into Donald Trump and Trump's America. Our next selection is The Confidence Man by Herman Melville, because why wouldn't a book from 1855 help us understand what's going on now? It's not an easy book, but it is a completely fascinating one, and I'll be talking about it with Philip Gravich of The New Yorker and the writer Katie Royfe. So it's almost the weekend, and the president is at Mar-a-Lago, a.k.a. the Winter TV Room entertaining Xi Jinping, the president of China. Trump has said terrible things about China. During the campaign, he said China's raping our country. He's accused them of outrageous theft of intellectual property, illegal dumping, and devastating currency manipulation. Trump has called for a 45% tariff on Chinese goods being imported into the country. And one of the first things Trump did after being elected was to take a call from the president of Taiwan, which was an unprecedented act pretty much designed to make the mainland Chinese government crazy. Then again, there's some things about Trump that Chiinese leadership must really like. He called the Tiananmen Square democracy protest a riot and admired the strength of the Chinese government in putting it down. And the Chinese might relate pretty well to kleptocrats whose families are busy enriching themselves through conflicts of interest. So it's hard to say just how friendly or unfriendly this meeting is going to be. 
Is Trump going to do what his economic nationalist advisors want him to do and threaten Xi Jinping with consequences on trade? Or will he recognize how stupid it would be to start a trade war and fold like a paper tiger? After the break, I'm going to ask the author of a new book about rising China, Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest today is Gideon Rackman. He's the chief foreign affairs commentator and a columnist for the Financial Times. And he He's the author of a new book called Easternization, Asia's Rise and America's Decline. Gideon, thanks for coming in today. Pleasure. So the news of the day is Xi Jinping's visit to Mar-a-Lago. I gather he is not a golfer and that Trump is not going to make him play golf. He's very much not a golfer. In fact, he's cracked down on golf as a symbol (laughs) of uh, all that was wrong with the Chinese Communist Party, as a symbol of corruption and so on. So it would be a real uh, disaster for him if he was seen playing golf with Trump. You've been watching this very closely, uh, although from across the Atlantic. But it seems there are these two factions around Trump, one that wants to be very confrontational with China and presumably with Xi during his visit in the next day, uh, and another faction that thinks that was sounded good during the campaign, but it's actually very dangerous. What's going to happen, do you think? Well, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, I think my guess is that the, looking at the way Trump's behaved on a whole range of issues, that there may be some confrontational language, but the actual policies will be relatively cautious, or if he moves towards confrontation, he'll then back off, uh, because that seems to what be what he's done with China up to date. If you took Trump right at the beginning, it looked quite scary, to be honest. I mean, for those of us who follow these kind of Chinese red lines that they have, Trump seemed to be trampling all over them in the, in the South China Sea and Taiwan, and these are issues that China would probably go to war over. So it was quite dangerous stuff when Trump, for example, took the phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president. But then I think he was rapidly kind of re-educated and he, the Chinese apparently just said, look, well, we, we actually won't speak to you until you reaffirm the Taiwanese one-China policy. And after kind of a month of thinking about it, he said, oh, right, and did it. Uh, so on the military stuff, he was more confrontational. Now he's backed off. I think the big question mark for the moment, is trade, where he still is talking a very tough game. We know in the campaign he accused China of raping American industry, talked about 45% tariffs and so on. I don't think he'll go there immediately. But there is a question, I think, still about who controls uh, that kind of line of thinking in the White House. Is it Peter Navarro, who was this, uh, is the head of the White House Trade Council? And to give you a clue as to his thinking, is the author of a book called death by China. <laughs> uh, so you know, he, he uh, would really like to dismantle the whole US-Chinese trade relationship. But then you have Gary Cohn, who's a much more conventional uh, view of these things, who, you know, I think all Americans would say there's plenty of things that they don't like about the way that tr- the, the economic relationship, but it's a question of applying pressure here, applying pressure there, trying to fix this, trying to fix that, rather than just smashing the whole thing up, as Navarro seems to want to do. There's a long tradition about American politicians 
and China. James Mann once wrote a terrific book about this. I don't know, I know if you if you know it. I forget what it's called, but it essentially says that they all attack China viciously when they're campaigning, and then they get in office if they win, and they understand the reality is you can't upset the apple cart with China, and they calm down and they have a they have an adult relationship with China and forget about it until not even their re-election campaign, but until someone else challenges them for being too accommodating toward China on trade and human rights and everything else. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was in Beijing just before the election and had that conversation with the Chinese where I would say to the, uh, you know, I was saying they seem to be quite pro-Trump largely because they hated Hillary Clinton. They were really suspicious of her because they associated her with an American pushback against them in particularly in the South China Sea. And I would say, well, hang on, you know, Trump said all this stuff about trade and, and so on. And they said, oh, we don't take any of that seriously. That's sort of standard for American presidential candidates. And he'll back off from that. And I was saying to them, oh, no, no, you this don't one's understand. Different. This one's different. But maybe they were right. I mean, maybe maybe the old pattern will actually reassert itself. And I think another pattern that happened, happened with Obama and maybe happening with Trump, is that they come in, presidents come in with a big strategic thought that Asia really matters. China really matters. This is what I'm going to focus on. And then terrible things start happening in the Middle East, and they get distracted by that. Uh, so that Trump, for example, when he meets Xi uh, tonight, will be probably thinking about, is he going to do military strikes on Syria over these chemical weapons attacks? And that must affect how willing he is to confront China at the same time. There's a limit to the number of confrontations you can have. Right. This is the Asia pivot that never happens. I mean, Obama literally yeah. came into office predicating his foreign policy on this idea of paying attention to Asia and not to the Middle East. Yeah. And what happened? He got bogged down in the Middle East and didn't get to pivot to, to Asia. Yeah. Well, you know, he did a little bit. There was a shift of the na naval resources. I think now 60% of the U.S. Navy's in Asia. And he probably spent more time there than most presidents. But in a way, he ended up with the worst of both worlds because he did sort of try to keep out of the Middle East, uh, you know, didn't intervene in Syria famously, got hammered for that. And I think part of the strategic thinking for Obama was, no, no, I've, I'm not going to get distracted from what I know is the important stuff. But even so, I think that the Chinese and the Japanese and particularly American allies in the region thought, you know, they weren't getting enough attention. They, where was the there with the pivot, you know, maybe a little bit more Navy, but what else w was there? So this is really interesting about the Chinese strategy toward Trump and how they think about Trump. You me mentioned two salient facts. One, they seem to be good at knowing when not to take him too seriously. That is on the Taiwan thing. They did draw a line, but they also didn't over react to it. But the other is this interesting point you make that they kind of admire him. They sort of recognize the, I don't know if it's the sort of kleptocrat enriching his family, but the, you know, the larger than life businessman who is, I guess, in some notional sense, a self-made man, although obviously Trump is not. But how can you simultaneously fight this guy, admire him and not take him seriously? Well, it also, you know, China is obviously a big place, so there'll be different reactions. Right. But I mean, I think on a popular level, there is a kind of an appeal of the strongman so that Putin's very popular in China, lots of books about him and, and people think he's a, an interesting and exciting figure. And, um, and so she, they share the Trump view of Putin. Yeah. yeah. And she, I think, has moved towards a sort of strongman image, very different from his predecessor, Hu Jintao, which was almost the de definition of a sort of colorless leader. So there is a kind of appetite for the strongman, but not for a strongman who aims his strength at China. And I think that you know, I'm not sure the Chinese really quite know what to make of him and how to deal with him, but they're 
they're being cautious. They're, 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 and I think a lot of, they will draw a lot of conclusions from this particular meeting. What's on the agenda at this meeting? A big part of it is North Korea, yeah. right? I mean, Trump thinks that China should rein in North Korea. Can they rein in North Korea in the way he wants in terms of their nuclear program? And would they be willing to do that? Well, those are both two very good questions. And I, they would say not necessarily. I mean, it is true that North Korea is a very poor state with one ally and one border other than South Korea, and that's China, very dependent on China. So they could definitely inflict a lot of economic harm and poverty on North Korea. But whether that would do the trick, this is a regime which has... You know, I don't know, happily is the wrong word, but has, a, has tolerated a famine uh, to, to maintain its grip on power. If you say that actually really all that Kim Jong-un wants to do is retain power, he would be probably prepared to, given he's got a sort of complete police state to clamp down on it, he would just have to accept it if the Chinese damaged the economy. I don't think he would say he would necessarily be overthrown. And I think that's the other thing. Do the Chinese actually want to destabilize North Korea? I think their argument is... Look, it's pretty terrible, but if it were to collapse, for them, there would be a, a big refugee issue. It is a nuclear weapons state already. You know, how would the Kim Jong-un regime face with the possibility of actual destruction? How would it respond? Would that not be even more dangerous? So I think they have quite valid arguments about how this is not a situation you want to necessarily go in with sort of hobnail boots. But the difficulty is that the Americans have decided, and this is a bipartisan thing, that they cannot tolerate the idea of a nuclear North Korea that has a ballistic missile that could hit the west coast of America. I happen to agree with that. Yeah, well, Katie McFarland said, you know, that might happen in the next three or four years. But I, I can see why, why, why you might feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would say, you know, America actually already toler tolerates, has had to accept that Russia can wipe out the United States many times over, that China can do the same. And Okay, the argument is that Kim Jong-un is different because he's crazy. Um, right. Your, your argument or the argument for living with it is that nu nuclear weapons make you behave rationally. And I think that's certainly true with Iran. It's why I, I, you know, supported the Iranian nuclear deal and, you know, why I think I think Iran is deterrable and deterred. But North Korea, I mean... Kim Jong-un is just crazy enough and the, that regime is just crazy enough that even if that turns out to be true, I don't feel we can be confident. In no. That. Well, it's always, you know, it's, it's one of the options. But I, is he crazy? I mean, he, he's certainly bizarre, but, th but his policies are rational. And if you say the only thing he wants to do is survive, it's actually extremely rational to murder all your potential rivals and develop nuclear weapons. It's ruthless, but it's not insane. And similarly, if there were a a relatively safe or option for taking out his nuclear weapons, of course, we'd all do it. The difficulty is they're dispersed around the country, that some of them are underwater, they're underground. Even if you did a first strike, you couldn't be sure that you'd take them all out. And even if he didn't retaliate directly against the United States, there are American bases in South it's Korea. tens of thousands of conventional missiles pointed Which at could level South Seoul. Korea. Yeah, exactly. Seoul. And, and yeah. Seoul is uh, 35 miles from the North Korean border. So uh, it would be a difficulty for the Americans if they were to do that, that their main ally in the region, South Korea, would, would be horrified because they, they would lose hundreds of thousands of people in the war. So, all right. So Trump is going to say to Xi, please take care of this. And you Xi is, 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 is going to say, well, our, our power is very limited, but we'll try to talk to him. 
Yeah, and I think what the Chinese may do uh, is what they've done in the past is go along with some sanctions at a UN Security Council resolution. So they'll chuck something at the Americans. While so, I don't think even if they don't believe in that policy, they can afford to be seen to be totally obdurate on this. Once Trump has said, you know, this is my number one priority, and it might. In a funny way, if they want to head off economic sanctions based on trade, they also have an incentive to appear to be a useful partner on North Korea. So again, I, I couldn't tell you exactly how it's going to go, but there are many different pieces of the puzzle. Another thing Trump might say if he were rational on trade is, she, you got to help me out here. I'm out on a limb. Mm. I got to, I can't after that campaign, <laughs> go back to the status quo and say I didn't get anything out of you. I'm supposed to be a great negotiator. Give me something. I would love to think that he would be that frank, but I cannot imagine it. I mean, I think... That but that's the underlying reality, right? She yeah. knows that Trump, if, if their analysis of American politics is on target, he knows that Trump, as mercurial as he is, can't drop the trade issue. Well, that is right. And I think that what they will try to do is give him something, but not... I think all foreign leaders, when they go in with Trump, know that he has to be able to come out and say, I've won. And you've got to just sort of put up with that. So what can he win? Well, maybe they can, uh, I think the Chinese would love if they could say, well, he's accepted a big direct foreign investment. China's going to create thousands of jobs all over China, because that's actually uh, all over the United States, because that actually fits with Chinese policy at the moment. Anyway, they're on a big foreign direct investment push. But of course, whether the Americans actually want China buying up lots of assets in the United States, not so clear, you know, building fast trains, all the kind of stuff they do uh, elsewhere. There may be also, I think, serious discussions to be had about issues like intellectual property, the repatriation of profits by American companies. Do you continue to insist that all American companies have a partner? That kind of thing, where you could actually make some progress and make life easier for American companies in China. But I think that one of the difficulties with the Navarro analysis of uh, China is there's no doubt that in some ways they are, inverted commas, an unfair trader. But they are already a huge and a really crucial market for many American companies. I mean, it's said that Apple sell more iPhones now in China than they do in the United States. KFC sell more chicken in China than they do in the United States. So the idea that this is a totally closed market and American companies are not doing well there is just not true. Yeah. I mean, the line from Trump is always treat our businesses better, be nicer to our businessmen. Although, as you point out, a lot of the businesses that are most important in China, particularly Apple and the other tech companies, are not ones that are particularly Trump-friendly, and they're not industrial jobs. They're not the kinds of jobs that he's identified with defending. No. And apparently, there was a famous conversation between Steve Jobs and, and Obama, where Obama said to Jobs, what would it take for you to manufacture iPhones in America? And Jobs just said, well, it's not going to happen. Forget yeah. it. But the point I was making is that China has moved on. I think many people still have this idea in their mind that the Chinese economy is simply a kind of low-cost economy, manufacturing widgets and, and TVs and phones and shipping them overseas to America and elsewhere. But it is now also a massive consumer market. And that means that different sorts of companies have a stake in, in keeping this relationship going. Let's talk about Easternization, the idea at the heart of your new book. And is it really that China is the next great power and that power is shifting east and that great story of the UK, its empire, and then the United States, and now it's China. They're rising and we're declining. Yeah, relative decline, definitely. Uh, I, I think that 
I suppose the starting proposition is that you can look now at the economic statistics and see there's been a big shift in economic power. So that the IMF say in 2014, that at least measured by purchasing power parity, which is, I think, the preferred uh, instrument of economists, China's the largest economy in the world, which is just, you know, historic moment, but also significantly three of the four biggest economies in the world are now in Asia. So it goes China, the US, Japan, India. Uh, and you can have a sense if you look at that or at flows, trade flows, where all the manufacturing is done, where the investment's flowing. A Asia and China at the heart of that is now at the core of the global economy. And the question in my mind is, well, how does that affect geopolitics? Because obviously there's traditionally uh, a relationship between economic and political power. And what the book tries to do is to trace, uh, is to argue that it already has changed geopolitics and uh, we're on the beginning of a journey, which is going to mean that increasingly Global politics is shaped by what happens in Asia in the way that in previous century, global politics was shaped by what happened in Europe and then what happened in the United States, because this is the core of the world economy. And you can see countries all over the world beginning to adapt to this new reality. We mentioned Obama's pivot to Asia, even if it didn't quite come off. It was quite a moment for the US president to say, OK, the primary focus of our foreign policy is now going to be Asia. No American president had really said that before. And you can already see a struggle for control of that region underway, a tacit struggle between the United States and China, strategic control, with China trying to build up its military facilities, create a sphere of influence, draw in allies. And that is the underlying reality behind this Trump-Xi summit. And then even beyond Asia, you can see the emergence of new kind of rivalries and new ways of thinking. Uh, so just to give you a couple of examples, in Africa, obviously, China is now a huge economic presence. And there was, I thought, a kind of interesting symbolic moment when Obama made a big trip to, to Africa and he made a big thing, understandably, of the fact that his father was a Kenyan and so on. And he got a standing ovation in the Organization of African Unity Hall, which had been built for and, and paid by Chinese money uh, because the Chinese now are such key investors in that region. He had to change the hotel he stays in in New York because the Chinese own it and it's not considered secure anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah. the Chinese come at the Waldorf Astoria, which is where the American missions, the United States, the residence of the American ambassador to the UN used to be, used to be where he would stay when he would come in for the UN. Now, we don't stay there because it's owned by a Chinese company. Yeah. And, and I mean, of course, some of that is reminiscent of the scares about Japan in the 80s, which, you know, when the Japanese right. bought the Rockefeller Center. And that is an interesting question. Is, it, is, is this just the latest kind of Asia scare and, you know, it'll all be over? And one of the things I argue in the book is that, no, this is a bit different because for a couple of reasons. Firstly, China is just, I mean, much bigger country. It's 1.3, 1.4 billion people. So the idea of Japan as number one was never really that plausible because the Japanese population was about half that of the United States. China just in aggregate is a huge economy. And um, and it's also an adversarial political system. I mean, Japan, people became pretty paranoid about it. But in the end, it was part of an American alliance system. And it wasn't trying to overturn American dominance in Asia. China isn't an American ally. And it is trying to overturn American dominance in Asia. If you'd said even a year ago, the Chinese will be presenting themselves as the global leaders on climate change, and on free trade, that would have been a kind of outrageous statement, but they're not presenting themselves that way because of the American abdication on those issues 
under Trump. How much do you think that represents them rising to the real role of a global superpower and actually thinking of of their job as a kind of global leadership? And how much do you think it's just an opportunism and kind of press release because Trump has left that open for them? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, I I think that they have been very astute in the way that they have played on the world's anxiety about Trump. And somehow, you know, the Obama people used to try and portray China as an irresponsible power. And now China's portraying the United States as an irresponsible power. And she did get a very good reception at Davos when he presented himself as the defender of global trade and globalization. And I remember then shortly afterwards talking to a senior EU official who's kind of in philosophical mode said, you know, it's very interesting when the Brits were the dominant power, they were the big champions of free trade. And when the Americans were the dominant power, they were the big champions of free trade. And now the Chinese are the ones talking about free trade. And you can feel the wheels of history turning. And there's something to that because, you know, the Chinese are not defending free trade because they have some abstract belief in the principle. It's because they're the world's largest manufacturer and the world's largest exporter. And it's massively in their interest to do that. And so... This idea that they are the defenders of rules-based order, I don't totally buy. They defend the rules that suit them. When the rules don't suit them, as in the South China Sea, when there was an international tribunal ruling against them, they just said, well, this is absurd. We're not, we're not, <laughs> we're not agreeing to that. So um, it is the case that you know they have a mixed picture. Some of this is just PR, some of it's self-interest. But say on climate change, it is quite remarkable to see the Europeans now, you know, f- Eight years ago in Copenhagen, it was the Chinese who were regarded as the problem, as the the bad guys. And now they're the ones saying stick to the Paris Climate Accords. I wish we were down there in Mar-a-Lago watching this. The Chinese really like to toast, but Trump doesn't drink. Yeah. And I think she is pretty self-disciplined. I mean, they're, they're, the differences in their upbringings is really quite remarkable. You know, she had seven years in exile during the Cultural Revolution, working out in the fields, sleeping on a stone bed and so on. On the other hand, the one thing they do have in common is a powerful father. I mean, Xi's father was actually a, a close colleague of Mao's. Yes, they've both lived under the shadow of not making it on their own, to trying to get everyone to think they made it on their own. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, you know, you asked earlier, how would the Chinese, would they kind of understand Trump as the kind of leader? they can do business with. And I think one of the things they do understand is princelings and family connections. So they would see Jared Kushner, it wouldn't seem that bizarre to them that that the top guys, kind of son-in-laws, you know, the guy you have to get to know, and if you can give him a business contract on the side, that might be a good (laughs) idea as well. That's totally how how things happen uh, in China and in Russia as well. Uh, So I think in that sense, it's all rather familiar to them. I've been speaking to Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times. His new book is Easternization, Asia's Rise and America's Decline. Gideon, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the new managing producer of Slate Podcast. Welcome, June. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.